It's not uncommon for them to see things and hear things that we can't see and hear and begin to act on them. And probably the biggest mistake then that I see made is people trying to argue with them or fight with them or convince them that they're behaving badly. Because ultimately, all that does is fuel the, the intensity of the situation, fuel the distrust, and cause them to get more and more distressed. So ultimately, when somebody's delirious, we first and foremost just recognize this is not them. This is the disease process kind of taking over their their ability to think and process clearly. And so we just work with them where they're at. Welcome to the With You at Every Step podcast. We address your healthcare questions and help you navigate life's challenges. Our guests share their expertise and real world advice related to care for older adults, grief and healing, and pregnancy and parenting. Every Step is a nonprofit healthcare and human services organization offering dozens of programs that are there when people need us most. Learn more about our free and low cost services at everystep.org. Thank you for listening. And here is our host, Polly Carver Kim. Thank you for joining us again today for this edition with you at Every Step. And our guest is Dr. Tom Mosier, the Chief Medical Officer for Every Step. And uh, he oversees our entire hospice care uh, division of Every Step. And that's what we're talking about today is uh, the end of life and some of the things that happen that are, quite frankly, having gone through this, very scary for the family. And that is delirium at the end of life. Um, I'm sure that, uh, of course, you've seen this all the time, Dr. Mosier. But for those um, who may not be familiar with this or have never encountered it yet, um, what is delirium? It's different from dementia or Alzheimer's disease, those kind of things that we think of. How would you describe delirium? Yeah, delirium is, it's complicated because we, we don't fully understand why it happens in one person and not in another. And there are many, many different things that can happen that lead to delirium. The other thing that complicates it is we use lots and lots of different medical terms interchangeably to describe delirium. Toxic metabolic encephalopathy, hepatic encephalopathy, metabolic encephalopathy, delirium. Um, and, and it's also something that can easily get missed or misdiagnosed. And the most common misconception is when someone comes into the hospital and they're acutely confused, a lot of people assume they just have dementia. So they may have the diagnosis of dementia hit their chart. And um, that can be very confusing to families because they don't know the difference. And so they might think, oh, they have dementia suddenly. But the reality is delirium is very different than dementia because number one, it comes on suddenly. Dementia occurs slowly over many years. It also fluctuates between having symptoms and, and going back to normal. Delirium is caused by global dysfunction of the entire brain. The brain, in a sense, um, being very fogged and confused and dazed. You could say short-circuiting, but it's not a seizure. But the brain just not functioning and being very disoriented. And delirium can then therefore be reversed, whereas dementia 
once you have an injury to the brain because of a dementia process or a breakdown in the brain because of a dementia process, it isn't something that can be cured or reversed. It is true that people with dementia, some have good days and bad days, but they never go back to normal like in delirium. What causes delirium? So anything that can assault the brain or throw off its normal function. If you think about the brain, it is one of the most complex supercomputers, way beyond even a supercomputer that could ever exist. The processes in the brain are extremely complicated, highly coordinated, lots and lots of chemicals, lots and lots of need for blood flow and oxygen. And there are many things, therefore, that can throw the complex functions of the brain off kilter. For example, low oxygen, having hypoxia, can throw the brain into a tailspin. We definitely know that if somebody has a stroke, things can change just on a, uh, a dime's notice, right? Um, the, the, the blink of an eye, somebody can go from being able to talk and walk to not. Um, so low oxygen to the brain can do it. Anything that causes inflammation in the body can send chemicals into the bloodstream that can throw the processes of the brain off kilter. So we know those people most prone to delirium are those that are elderly, those whose brains are maybe a little bit more vulnerable. As we age, we actually lose brain capacity rather than gain it. In fact, I think at the age of between 30 and 40, our brains are already losing capacity uh, year after year, not gaining it anymore. And so ultimately, as you get older, your brain is more vulnerable to stress. And so anytime there's an infection in the body, it can throw uh, chemicals into the blood that throw the processes of the brain out of kilter. So it's very common for people who are elderly to have acute delirium come on when they have something like a simple urinary tract infection or a simple infection somewhere in their body. It's often one of the first things we look for when we identify that there is an acute change in their mentation and thinking and cognition and that they're fighting delirium. Um, other things that are commonly involved are drugs. So every medication that we put in the body ultimately works by getting into the bloodstream and flowing to the cells of the body. And it just so happens that there are numerous medications and medication classes that have the potential to throw the function of the brain out of kilter. Those might be drugs that are intended to help the brain, and those might be drugs intended to help other parts of the body. Common offenders would be uh, sedative, hypnotics, and anti-anxiety medications in the benzodiazepine class, like common names would be Xanax or Ativan or Valium. Um, another really common class is anything that impairs what we call cholinergic pathways in the body. And uh, common medicines in that class, any of the sleep aids, Benadryl, um, really any medication that causes the potential for sedation has a high, high risk of delirium. Um, other classes would be medications that typically are aimed at trying to help chemical processes in the brain, like antidepressants and things like that. And many times they affect brain function by affecting neurochemistry, 
But when the brain is vulnerable and encountering a lot of stress, um, affecting the neurochemistry can sometimes cause the brain to go into a tailspin. And then other classes that we see not uncommonly are pain medications. So it's not uncommon for someone to uh, have a delirium event after just getting a simple opioid like morphine or hydrocodone. And interestingly, it's not uncommon to find they have trouble with one of those medications in the family, but do fine with another. So it's I, I literally had somebody this week who got uh, very delirious after morphine, but they did really fine with its family member hydrocodone. So we we just have to be very mindful about what medications were newly added, um, what medications maybe were taken as needed um, so that we can figure that out. So um, ultimately, any big change that comes when somebody is vulnerable can throw them into delirium. Another thing that is super common is literally just changing their normal environment or structure. So in an elderly person, um, when they literally leave maybe their normal residence and end up in the hospital, just being in a new location can sometimes throw them into disorientation. Sleep deprivation. If you can imagine how critical sleep is and how much we don't function uh, when we're not getting sleep, you can literally cause delirium in the youngest of patients simply by depriving them of sleep. And we definitely know when people are ill, when they are in the hospital over and over, when they're moving from different locations um, because of illness, oftentimes sleep gets further and further behind and it really increases that risk. So ultimately, there is a plethora. And then lastly, you can think of any organ dysfunction. So the kidneys clean waste products out of the blood, as does the liver. If the body is sick and the kidneys and liver are functioning well, those byproducts can, can build up in the blood and those chemicals can throw uh, the brain's function into a tailspin. So delirium is extremely common uh, during uh, illnesses. It's extremely common in the elderly. We see it a lot in the hospital. But at end of life, we almost always anticipate we're going to see it at some point. It is so common that I would say it is rare for somebody not to experience one of the forms of delirium somewhere in their journey. That leads me to a question. Um, having experienced exactly, not personally, but watching a loved one go through delirium, and it was related to a urinary tract infection. What do you do as the caregiver or the person who is with that person who is having delirium? Um, you know, you can't talk them out of it. No, there's nobody standing there. Um, you know, in my case, they were seeing people in the room that weren't there. And it's, it, it's frankly scary for the love, you know, you're watching your loved one go through this. What should you do as the person who's there with them when this is happening? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it comes from understanding a little bit about what's going on in delirium first. So what delirium is, what it, how it presents is definitely at minimum, a loss of the ability to focus and sustain attention. So I talk about it as being on a spectrum. Some people just have the loss of the ability to focus. So they might be able to talk to you and start answering a question, and then all of a sudden they lose their train of thought, things derail, 
and they start talking about something that's very bizarre that makes no sense. And in that state, they usually aren't that distressed. But as delirium gets more and more dense, or as they get more and more delirious, they can then start to not just have trouble with attention and focus, but start to actually hallucinate or dream while they're awake. And so they can become very fixated on false beliefs. Um, it's not uncommon when it's really severe for people to get paranoid and think that their loved ones are conspiring against them or that people are trying to harm them. They can then even get somewhat combative in the defensive posture because they're afraid. They have these beliefs that people are trying to harm them and therefore they try to protect themselves. So it's not uncommon for the most docile and sweet of personalities to suddenly get pretty hostile, out of character to themselves. It's not uncommon for them to see things and hear things that we can't see and hear and begin to act on them. And probably the biggest mistake then that I see made is people trying to argue with them or fight with them or convince them that they're behaving badly. Because ultimately, all that does is fuel the the intensity of the situation, fuel the distrust, and cause them to get more and more distressed. So ultimately, when somebody's delirious, we first and foremost just recognize this is not them. This is the disease process kind of taking over their, their ability to think and process clearly. And so we just work with them where they're at. I've gotten down on my knees before when somebody thinks children are under their bed making noise and just ask the children who, you know, aren't there to leave the room because they need to sleep. And it's amazing sometimes to see how the patient who's experiencing delirium will respond, just calming down and going to sleep at that point because you escorted the children out. Um, I typically don't try to correct their false belief, but I work within it. I stay calm. I talk to them softly. If they're really distressed and it's just causing more agitation for me to be talking to them, I may exit. Ultimately, if I think they're unsafe, that's when I might utilize a medication to see if I can help them. So it can be really challenging, but the most important thing is to recognize that they are not out of their own intention or volition um, misbehaving. And families don't need to feel the shame and embarrassment of them doing things that is not characteristic of them. We as healthcare workers recognize that they are not themselves when they are delirious and that we need to protect them uh, and not judge them because of their behavior. And there are behaviors associated with delirium that that you may find embarrassing. You know, they decide that they don't want to wear clothes. Um, or they're uh, going to fix the television remote and they take it apart and you don't know what to, or they eat things that aren't edible. Those, again, that's seeing past what they're doing to what the situ what the condition is that they're going through. Yeah, it can be very distressing. It can be very destructive and it can be very unsafe. So it's really important that healthcare professionals are always aware when somebody is having delirium so that we can help intervene and come up with the best and safest care plan. Um, knowing that delirium has many causes, the first thing we often do besides try maybe to give a medication to help them be more calm um, is try to identify the source. So 
us knowing that delirium is occurring is really important because the first thing I'm typically doing is looking for signs of infection, I'm looking at their medication list. Are there any new medications or offending medications or drug-drug interactions that could have built up that are causing this? Um, looking at, are there reversible causes? And then ultimately, working with um, families to try to mitigate the safety issues. If they're taking a lot of things apart and we think it's unsafe, trying to change the environment so maybe there's not as much um, there that they could hurt themselves with. Um, if they're um, disrobing, to put a screen uh, in front of the door, if it's like a hospital or um, a unit where other people could could see them and you want to give dignity and privacy, um, but not necessarily constantly trying to combat the behavior. For whatever reason, when people are delirious, they they kind of reach this state of hyperstimulation and they literally don't like things touching their skin. So it is very common for them to disrobe, to throw off the sheets, for all of dignity to go out the window because they're not really caring about that at the moment. They just don't like things touching them. And so we oftentimes then will try to work within um, the situation to help provide for their dignity, but also provide for their comfort. Because when somebody is delirious, although they are oftentimes very confused and, and even psychotic, having psychosis-like symptoms, their perception is their reality. So ultimately, if somebody has a fixed delusion that something is going on, if we work within that, um, rather than trying to just tell them they're wrong, they're more likely to trust us and let us help them than if we're constantly going toe-to-toe -to -toe uh, with them and trying to change their perception, um, even though it might be a bit distorted. Is delirium permanent then, or does it come and go? I guess it's based on the medications and the infection or whatever the cause uh, is. Well, that's another hallmark of delirium. As opposed to dementia, which you can often look back and say, oh yeah, I noticed that years ago mom was having more trouble with names and then she started losing things and then she started forgetting traffic rules and now mom is very, very confused and it's fixed. Delirium comes on like a light switch flicking. Somebody can literally be um, teaching college courses one day and the next day floridly confused and not able to process things at all. So it comes on abruptly. So delirium is defined by an abrupt onset or abrupt change in cognition. So even somebody with dementia who has a certain baseline and suddenly has an abrupt change like a light switch flip, that would be the defining uh, symptom of delirium. It's abruptly changed from their baseline and it also then comes and goes. So like the switch is flickering on and off, people can literally be with you for a minute, get very, very confused, start acting very bizarrely, start doing impulsive things, going very tangential with their thought processes. And then all of a sudden, like in the flick of a, a switch, they can be back and oriented. So delirium rapidly cycles. It's, um, it's something that comes and goes. Sometimes it's mild, sometimes it's severe. It's on that continuum from just inability to focus, 
and keeps attention sustained to floridly having symptoms of psychosis. And uh, so I think the changing, the cyclic changes, if you're seeing that, that would be the thing that would trigger this is delirium, not something else. Wow, really interesting conversation today. Uh, I learned a great deal, and I'm sure our listeners did too. And and I'm sure there are many more questions about delirium and 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 hospice care in general. If you have any of those questions, we've got lots of people to answer them and to give you some uh, assistance. You just go to everystep.org, everystep.org, and then slash care, everystep.org slash care, excuse me, care. Uh, Dr. Mosher, thanks again for being on the show today. We always enjoy having you on. Thanks so much for having me, Polly. Dr. Mosher is the uh, Chief Medical Officer for Every Step. We're sure glad to have you. And uh, thanks for tuning in today. I'm Polly Carver-Kim. <laughs>